Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Pranandar, Kloisnur de Gethli, good afternoon and welcome to Hay, and the second in the series which we have in association with Cambridge University. Emily Shukborough is a climate scientist and mathematician at the British Antarctic Survey, and she has been recently appointed as director of the Carbon Neutral Initiative, sorry, Carbon Neutral Futures Initiative at Cambridge University, uh, where she's leading on, uh, on the research which will be supporting their carbon neutral ambitions and taking a global leadership role in uh, the transition to a carbon neutral future. It's a big old thing, but it's looking great. She's here, the title of her lecture is called How Will Climate Change Affect Me? And she will be signing in the book tent afterwards. Please do give Emily Shukborough a warm hey welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. So I'm going to be talking about climate change and in particular how climate change might affect all of us. But I wanted to start off with this. So this apparently unremarkable rock is in fact the oldest object in the British Museum in London. It's a stone chopping tool. Um, comes from East Africa, made by our very, very early ancestors nearly two million years ago. And I put it up here because carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere today are higher than they have been throughout all of this human history and prehistory. In fact, you have to go back at least a million years before this to find equivalent levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And I think that's really important to understand. The atmosphere that we're breathing, if you take a big breath of, of air now, it's got more carbon dioxide in it than at any time throughout human history, prehistory, and beyond. We really are living in unprecedented times. Now, one question that's interesting to understand in the context of climate change is how the climate has changed naturally over the historical past. And one of the key pieces of evidence that we have around that comes from ice cores that we take from Antarctica, where bubbles of air in the ice trap ancient air and allow us to understand both how the temperature and the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere have varied in the past. Now, last year, I got together in a project that was sponsored by the Hay Festival and the Natural Environment Research Council that paired together scientists and artists and writers. And we put together a little animation that shows some of the science that's undertaken around ice cores. And I wanted just to share that with you. So let's see whether we can get this to work. It's cold in Antarctica. It's always cold. In fact, it's been cold for such a long time that a lot of the snow hasn't melted for millions of years. All that time, it just keeps piling up, deeper and deeper. So today, in places across Antarctica, the snow is over three kilometers deep. 
Over time, this snow packs together. It crushes under its own weight so tightly that it becomes solid ice. But it isn't completely solid. It contains tiny bubbles. These bubbles of air have been sealed off from the world since the time they were formed hundreds of thousands of years ago. That makes them very interesting for climate scientists. The scientists at the British Antarctic Survey have taken samples of ice from the surface to the bottom three kilometers down. By measuring the CO2 in the air bubbles, they have charted its level back through the years. CO2 is a greenhouse gas. That means it traps heat, acting like a blanket that warms the earth. The more CO2, the warmer the earth. It's low during ice ages and high during warm periods. During ice ages, huge sheets of ice, kilometers thick, form across Europe, Asia, and North America. During the warm periods, like today, the ice retreats. Low CO2, high CO2. Low, high, low, high. So what are the CO2 levels that we are recording today? They are much, much higher. That's because burning fossil fuels releases CO2. And in recent years, we have been releasing more and more CO2 into the atmosphere, from our homes, from factories, and from cars and planes. Forests absorb CO2, but we have been cutting our forests down all around the world. This CO2 will continue warming the planet whilst it remains in the atmosphere. And meanwhile, we are emitting even more. The polar regions are warming and melting, that's very bad news for rising sea levels, and it will also have a devastating effect on wildlife here. There are ways we can reduce our emissions and at the same time improve the quality of our lives. We will all need to act, and act now together. Please help. We need to limit CO2 now. So that animation was put together in conjunction with the children's author, Chris Horton. And I've been working again with him this year, together with Nicola Davies, who's also a children's author. Um, we've produced a sequel to this, which I will show you towards the end of the presentation. What I wanted to do now is, rather than show you lots and lots of data, to tell you some stories of some of the people that I've met or work with, or one of these is actually my daughter, um, about how they are themselves witnessing climate change and link that together with the scientific data. So the first story that I wanted to tell you um, is the lady on the, on the um, left here, Mary Ellen Thomas. She comes from Iqaluit, which is a village in the Canadian Arctic. And I visited there a few years ago and spoke to her and many of the other locals. And I was really struck by their perception of just how much their world is changing. The Arctic region has been warming much more than the rest of the planet. In fact, it's been warming at twice the rate of the global average. And this is one of the things she said to me. She said, it's as if a friend that we could trust is suddenly acting strangely. And she would tell stories of how you could now hear robins singing on the roofs of houses, and never before were there robins in that part of the world, that they were seeing salmon um, hundreds of miles from where they should be, that her whole world was just 
not what it used to be, and she found that deeply perturbing. Here's somebody else. This is a colleague of mine from the British Antarctic Survey, and um, he's just got back from Antarctica. We've been taking part in what we think is the largest research expedition ever to have been conducted in Antarctica. It's a joint UK-US mission to look at the very remote Thwaites Glacier, which is part of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. People like Rob have spent many, many years studying the Antarctic and studying ice sheets and ice shelves in the Antarctic. But um, this particular part of Antarctica really is very, very remote and hasn't been much studied before. And when he was there, um, he was uh, tweeting while they were there, and they were starting to send back more and more concerning messages. This is one of them um, that he said, photograph of the front of that Thwaites glacier. And he said, people who have seen other ice shelves may say, that doesn't look like a normal ice shelf front. It isn't. And it isn't because it looks, to any expert in ice shelves, so degraded. And the concern is that this glacier, which is already contributing 5% to global sea level rise, may be already in an irreversible retreat. And it's critical to the stability of the entire West Antarctic ice sheet. The concern is that if that ice sheet collapses, destabilizes, then we would eventually see some three meters of sea level rise, which would completely transform global coastlines. And the third um, story that I wanted to tell you, this is one of my daughters, Eloise, last summer. So last summer we had a very intense heat wave in this country. And so this is uh, from uh, David Shookman from the BBC, tweeted, too hot to sleep, what's happening with the heat wave in the UK? And one of those days, my daughter came back from nursery, and I thought she was just very tired. She was a bit lethargic. We took her up to bed, and as I was taking her up to bed, I thought she was really, really hot. And took her temperature, it was well over 40 degrees. And then spent a very worrying evening, night, desperately trying to keep her temperature down. I think she's got mild heat stroke, wondering whether or when, when was the stage we actually needed to take her to A&E because heat stroke can be really dangerous. And it really brought home to me just how much we're already seeing the effects of climate change here and now, affecting people's lives in this country today already. We've already seen, since, since the hot summer that everyone remembers of 1976, global average temperatures have increased by more than half a degree Celsius. And that sounds like a relatively small number, but it translates into a very large increase in the risk of heat waves. So those are some personal stories. I thought I'd now show you some data. These are just four graphs showing how the world has changed over the last 150 years. So society in many countries of the world have been completely transformed over that last 150 years, and you can see that in terms of a hundredfold increase in global GDP. But much of that transformation has, of course, come about as a consequence of industrialization, and that industrialization has been powered primarily through the burning of fossil fuels. We've seen a 20-fold increase in energy use, 
And because that energy use has mostly been by fos using burning fossil fuels, fossil fuels put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and so we would expect the temperatures on the Earth to increase, and that is indeed what's happened. More than one degree Celsius of increase in temperature over that time period. And that's had a knock-on effect in many other aspects of the climate system, and there's just one indicator that I've put here of those other effects, and that is the increase in sea level globally, which has increased by about 25 centimetres to date. Now, this map here is a compilation of studies that have been conducted over the last couple of years that have looked at actual extreme weather events around the world that have occurred uh, in recent years and asked the question, has climate change that's already occurred increased the risk of those sorts of extreme weather events? And you can see lots and lots of dots on this graph. The dots that are coloured blue, and there's only a few of them, are ones where there hasn't been a connection to climate change found. The dots coloured grey are ones where the results are just inconclusive. But all the dots that are coloured red are cases where we have been able to say scientifically, after careful study, that indeed the risk of those extreme weather events has increased as a consequence of the climate change we've seen to date, and in many cases increased many, many, many times. And I thought I'd just talk you through a few of the examples that are behind those dots. So we've seen some extreme flooding events in the UK in recent years, last in 2014, particularly strong floods, uh, including affecting parts of the country not, not far from here, causing literally billions of pounds worth of damage. Now, what happens is that as the world warms up, the atmosphere is able to hold more water vapour in it to rain down in heavy rainfall events. And that's the reason that you get exacerbated risk of flooding in a warmer climate. The next example over here is from China, where there have been a series of severe heat waves in certain parts of the country in recent years. And events, heat wave events that used to be a risk of occurring maybe a couple of times a century are now occurring a couple of times a decade or more frequently even than that. Turning over to the left-hand side there, 2017, there was an exceptionally strong hurricane season in, that affected the United States and Caribbean. The mechanics of hurricane formation and how that interacts with climate change is complex, but both that effect of the atmosphere having more water to rain down and exacerbating flooding, together with sea level rise, means that the storm surge flooding that's associated with those hurricanes is that much worse. And the bottom example I have down here is from a severe drought that affected southern Africa in 2016, resulting in millions of people requiring humanitarian assistance. That was associated with a natural climatic phenomenon known as El Nino, but exacerbated by climate change. This photograph here comes from New Orleans. I was recently there um, giving a talk at a conference and reminded of the terrible hurricane that hit in 2005, Hurricane Katrina. 
I remember at the time people saying, oh, perhaps this is the wake-up call that the world needed to realise that climate change is a real and present danger and we need to respond. Now, sadly, our response hasn't been very significant. I looked back to see what the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere were back in 2005, and they were 378 parts per million. Roll forward to today, and this is an image from Mozambique, similar flooding. Two massive cyclones have hit Mozambique over the last couple of months, Hurricane Idai, Cyclone Idai and then Cyclone Kenneth. Carbon dioxide levels in the intervening 14 years have rocketed up from 378 to now nudging 415 parts per million. It wasn't the wake-up call, sadly, that we all hoped. One of the communities in Mozambique that's been particularly badly affected is the island of Ibu, just off the coast of Mozambique. And these are photographs of some of the people there. These are people who were already, this sign says uh, that they plant a tree to protect the environment. They were already doing what they could as a tiny community to look after their environment, and yet they've been completely decimated by a global threat that's largely not of their making. It's estimated that as temperatures increase from today, as they move higher and higher towards 1.5 degrees and beyond, the risks will only increase. Risks in terms of extreme weather events, but also risks in terms of water security, um, availability of food, and it is estimated that if temperatures go from 1.5 to 2 degrees, there will be several hundred million more people who are exposed to both climate-related risks and poverty. And it's not just people. The natural world is also acutely affected by climate change. Coral reefs are already seeing very significant damage, not just from the warming seas, but also from the oceans becoming more acidic as increasing carbon dioxide in the oceans creates more acidic conditions. And together, those are causing serious damage to coral reefs. It's estimated that if the temperatures rise to 1.5 degrees, most of the coral reefs of the world will have disappeared. And if they reach 2 degrees, they may be gone entirely. Other unique species, here are some polar examples, also threatened by even small increases in temperature. These polar species are particularly well adapted to the extreme cold conditions in the polar regions. Elsewhere in the world, we see species moving closer to the poles to keep in temperatures that are the same temperatures as the world warms up or moving up mountains. But if you're already in the polar regions, you don't have anywhere to go. It's estimated, again, if temperatures go from 1.5 to 2 degrees, that two to three times more plant and animal species will experience severe habitat loss. And it's already determined that in the next couple of decades, some one million species may be at risk of extinction from climate change and other stresses. So let's now turn to the UK in particular. What are the greatest risks from climate change that affect the UK? Well, the first one, as we have seen in recent years, comes from flooding. 
risks of coastal flooding and of uh, flooding from, from rivers um, through extreme rainfall events. The other example that we've seen in recent years, including last summer, is the risk from heat waves. And it's particularly either the very young or the very old that are susceptible to the effects of heat waves. Risk of water shortages, risk to our wildlife, to our biodiversity, risks to our food supply. And that comes not just from the risks to growing food in the UK, but also because we live in a globally connected system, climate change that's happening elsewhere in the world can affect both the supply and price of food in the UK. And the final example is the risks of new invasive pests and diseases. This is an Asian tiger moth whose range is steadily increasing as the climatic conditions change and allow it to spread throughout the world. So what are we doing to better understand how the world is changing and how it might change into the future? Well, we have now an ever-increasing wealth of data and information about the world from a huge range of different sources. From space, we're able to study the Earth, and we have huge amounts of data coming in every day from satellites. Just the European Space Agency produces some 10 petabytes of data every single day. That's equivalent to having 10 million phones, 10 million iPhones, full of data every single day. It's really huge data sets. And that's just one of the space agencies. NASA produces a similar amount, other space agencies yet more. We also have data from new um, sensors covering all sorts of different aspects of the Earth system. And this is just one example. There's a fleet of some 4,000 little floats that um, dive up and down from the surface to about 2,000, or in some cases, 6,000 meters in the ocean, taking measurements, reaching below the surface of the ocean where satellites can no longer reach, and sending back their data. We started to look at other sources of data. This example up here is a ship's log taken from the 19th century, where very detailed records of the weather were, were kept. And we're now trying to um, gather up all that past data to try and get a better understanding of how weather changed in the past and what information we can use from that to understand the present. And we're also looking at other diverse ways of collecting data. Here's an example of using citizens of the world to study and, and report on deforestation so we can gather that information together as well. But now we have these huge data sets. The challenge is how do we analyze them in order to better understand the risks associated with climate change, and in particular, the risks at a very local level. A lot of the time, climate change is spoken about in terms of global average quantities. We talk about, I've already spoken about, an increase in the global average temperature of one degree Celsius so far. And the challenge with that is that nobody, no individual is affected by global average temperature. It's quite an abstract number. And what we would like to do is to translate that to understand what the impacts on communities, on individuals, in particular locations, what the risks of extreme weather events are, rather than that global average number. Not least because sometimes those numbers, global average numbers, 
sound rather small, one degree, two degrees increase in temperature. It doesn't sound very significant. We see much greater variations in temperature throughout the day. But those numbers, as I've already said, can translate into very, very significant increases in the risk of extreme weather events, and we want to understand that better. So what we're doing is we're starting to deploy the latest advances in machine learning to try and understand the world better and make sense of all this data. And I thought I'd just give you a little bit of insight into the sorts of things we're doing there. So here are two photographs, actually photographs I've taken in the Falkland Islands of um, penguins, and they've been photobombed by a turkey vulture. And if you put these photos into Google, Google um, uses machine learning to then guess. It's got very sophisticated these days, so it can detect that uh, there might be king penguins in the background, but what's been photobombed is uh, bombing this picture is a turkey vulture and will produce other similar images of turkey vultures. So it's able to make a prediction using machine learning about this photograph. And then it's able to do the latest advances in machine learning are able to do even more. So if I wanted to eliminate my photobombing turkey vulture from this picture, you can use machine learning to do that and to extrapolate the image, just as we would do in our own heads, of what actually lies behind the um, turkey vulture and to make a prediction for that. So we are trying to use exactly these same sort of techniques to improve our understanding based on the data of climate-related risks. And here are just some of the examples of the sorts of things that we're trying to do in that context. We're trying to look at aspects of the climate system that are difficult to model at the moment. So one example of that would be Arctic sea ice. Arctic sea ice, the physical processes that are involved in the evolution of Arctic sea ice are very complicated. And so what we're doing is seeing whether we can, on the basis of all the available data and machine learning techniques, better understand how those um, physical processes fit together and, and allow us to make predictions out into the future. Similarly, clouds, another challenging thing to model in terms of the climate system because, again, so many processes happen on so many different scales associated with clouds, and there are so many different types of clouds. But again, can we learn the evolution of clouds on the basis of the available data. In the ocean, currents in the ocean, the equivalent, ocean equivalent of atmospheric storms, are incredibly important for the evolution of climate, not least because they're critical to the way in which the ocean takes carbon dioxide up from the atmosphere. About half of our emissions of carbon dioxide each year are, e are either taken up by the land or by the oceans. And so our understanding that ocean sink of carbon dioxide and how it might change in the future is incredibly important because otherwise that carbon dioxide would be going into the atmosphere. And then the final example I've got over here, this is again from the Thwaites Glacier. And this is an armada of icebergs coming off the Thwaites Glacier as it's starting to retreat. And we are, this is satellite data, and we're trying to use machine learning to track the evolution of those icebergs to gain better understanding the physical processes associated with them. And then we're also trying to go to the next stage. So if we really want to understand how climate change might affect us, we also want to understand not just the meteorological conditions out into the future, 
but what the knock-on effect of those meteorological conditions are, what the impact of those meteorological conditions are on our built environment, whether or not we need to raise our flood defences, whether or not we need to put in place new forms of urban drainage, whether or not we need to build our schools differently in terms of the thermal comfort in those buildings, what the implications in terms of air conditioning use around the world, and then in terms of the impacts of that air conditioning use on national um, power systems. So what we're trying to do is pull together all the data, not just the meteorological data, but other data sets as well, to work out the patterns that connect these things so that we can take our climate projections and map them through into these downstream implications to help people make robust decisions to support the transition to a resilient, low-carbon future. Now, I wanted now just to, to, to talk a little bit about the pathway that we're currently on. So I've spoken quite a bit about the risks that are come about as temperatures increase from today to 1.5 degrees and beyond. I want to now talk about how the world is responding in terms of that. So first of all, let's ask the question, what pathway are we on at the moment? So on the left-hand side here shows the surface, global average surface temperatures over the last few decades, from the 1960s up until the present day. And then I've just extrapolated that forward to give an indication of where we would likely hit 1.5 degrees of warming if we just continued on our current trajectory of warming. And we find that we're likely to hit 1.5 degrees sometime between about 2030 and 2050 at our current rate of warming. Now, it turns out that there's a very useful simplification in terms of the science that tells us how much more carbon dioxide we can put into the atmosphere before we have set ourselves on a course to exceed that 1.5 degrees of warming. And so we can think of that in terms of a carbon budget. There's a total amount of carbon that we can put into the atmosphere before we exceed the budget for keeping temperatures below 1.5 degrees of warming. Now, we've already put vast quantities of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, more than 2,000 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. In terms of the budget that's less left, we have much, much less than that, just over 400 billion tonnes left in our budget to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees. And we're burning fossil fuels and changing land at a, at a rate that's putting more than 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere each year. So you can do the arithmetic. It means that we have around about 10 years or so left at our current rate of burning fossil fuels and changing our land use before we blow the budget for keeping temperatures below 1.5 degrees. And that articulates the scale and the urgency of the challenge of responding to climate change. The black dots in this graph show our current emissions of carbon dioxide over the last few decades, steadily increasing year on year on year. The blue curves show pathways of future emissions of carbon dioxide that are consistent with keeping temperatures below 1.5 degrees. 
And you can see that essentially it means exactly reversing the trajectory that we are on today, such that we reduce our emissions by half over the next decade and get down to net zero emissions by the middle of the century, and then actively take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere there afterwards. Again, that shows, I think, very clearly the scale and the urgency of the challenge of responding. And we are just simply not on that trajectory at the moment. If we just again extrapolate the trajectory that we're currently on, you can see just what a gulf there is between the pathway that we're on and the pathway that we need to be on in order to limit future climate change. I always like to put this image up when I'm putting up these graphs. This is my other daughter, Genevieve, and this is my grandmother. And I always reflect, it's very easy to look at these graphs and just think they're graphs, but there's millions upon millions of real people's lives behind these graphs. The young people of today will either live through a future where we keep climate change in check and respond on this sort of timescale, they'll live through a world that's rather similar to the world that we've all been enjoying, or they will live through a very, very different future. Now, in the UK, we've actually reduced our emissions or territorial emissions um, reasonably significantly over recent decades, but that decrease has come predominantly from the power sector, from us reducing our reliance on coal to generate energy. If you look at other sectors, if you look at our emissions from transport, our emissions from industry, our emissions from our buildings, heating and lighting our buildings, our emissions from agriculture or other sectors, there's been very little change. To get on this sort of trajectory of emissions reductions, we need to make substantial changes across all those other sectors. Now, I promised you that um, I would show you one more animation. This is a new animation that I've uh, produced with Chris Horton and with Nicola Davies. And this uh, is particularly focusing on climate change in the UK. Nine out of ten of the warmest years ever in the UK have happened since 2002. Birds don't understand humans, but they know all about climate change. Nuthatches, which until recently only lived in the south of the UK, are now seen as far as Scotland. Other birds, such as the red grouse and snow bunting, need to keep moving north to escape rising temperatures. Eventually, they'll run out of north to go to and could disappear from the UK altogether. Blue tits and great tits breed already over a week earlier than they did 40 years ago, but it's not nearly enough to catch the even earlier peak in caterpillars they need to feed their young. But birds aren't the only ones affected by climate change. Bats wake up from hibernation too soon and may not make it through the winter. Pesticides and habitat loss have already hit insect pollinators hard. Now climate change is driving their numbers down even further. Without them, we humans will struggle to grow many common fruits and vegetables. We need radical change, but small acts can make a difference too. Put on a warm jumper instead of turning your heating up. Walk or cycle instead of using the car. Eat less meat and more vegetables instead. And please tell others, 
if we all work together, we can create a better world. Now, a couple of years ago, I wrote a ladybird book together with Tony Juniper and the Prince of Wales. And one of the things we tried to do in that ladybird book was not just set out the threats posed by climate change, but also the opportunities inherent in responding to climate change. There are so many ways in which we can respond to climate change that have other positive benefits. Responding in a way that, 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 that prevents the air pollution, which is causing so many deaths around the world. Responding in a way that gives people healthier lifestyles. You saw the image of uh, bicycles, just walking and cycling more, or, or, or having healthier diets with less red meat, um, all help to create clim better climate change and improve people's health around the world. Access to clean um, electricity is a key development requirement for millions and upon millions of people around the world. If we can provide clean electricity to those people, we help development, but we also help um, climate change at the same time. There are so many different ways in which we can use innovation to help support a better world, a better environment, and also um, help support climate change. And so this is a quote from that Ladybird book, if we act now to tackle climate change, we will support progress towards a more prosperous, secure, and sustainable future. And I really think that it's in, you know, one of the critical things is to seize this idea of this being an opportunity, this being a future that we can shape. We have a choice, essentially, today as to what kind of legacy we want to leave our children and grandchildren. That can either be a legacy where we have tackled climate change and taken advantage of these sort of opportunities, or it will be a legacy of a very, very different world. We've seen around the world school children coming out on strike in recent weeks and months, very much making that message, putting out that message that it's their lives that are at stake, and they're absolutely right. It's decisions that we make today that will affect their futures. So I'll leave just with this one image. This is um, the first photograph taken from the space of the Earth from the Apollo mission back in 1972. And I think it, it, it was the image that really set us thinking just um, how unique and precious our Earth was, but also how, how vulnerable it is, this tiny dot in space. Sometimes it seems incredible that as individual people, collectively, we can have such a global impact as climate change. But the flip side of the fact that we have is that as individual people, collectively, we could also be addressing the challenge of climate change. And that's where I'll leave things and open up for questions. Thank you. suggest that we should be changing what we eat, uh, change the way we travel. I mean, my concern is that this is a global problem, and unless all we, if, if we 
are madly successful in this country, all we'll end up is doing is putting off the moment when we get to, to the critical point that without international um, action, and by which you know, the United States now is officially a, a denier, uh, clearly mm -hmm. India and China um, want the quality of life we have, and that and largely based, or certainly in China, on, on, on coal. What I'm saying is, you know, is the focus on individuals in this country going to be successful? So I think there's a, a few different points in there. I mean, first of all, actually, India and China are really surging ahead <coughs> in their use of renewable energy, in wind and, and solar. Um, so I think there is some hope that actually countries like that will develop in a different way to the way in which we have industrialised. Um, but I think this idea that, that we, you know, yes, we're a small country, and yes, we only have um, a certain contribution to global emissions, but I think that actually we can, through our leadership, we can be much more impactful than that. I mean, we, you know, just through the products that we buy, which come from global supply chains, we can end up having, if we insist that those, those products themselves are reducing their carbon footprint, then we can have a knock-on effect. The innovations that we develop in this country, if they're low carbon, carbon zero innovations, then those innovations can spread globally. So I think we can actually take a greater leadership role and have a bigger influence than our, just our, our, our own carbon footprint. So I think it, you know, it is worth, absolutely worth us doing everything that we can. Uh, there's also potential opportunities, right? Especially in terms of innovation. If we can be ahead of the curve in terms of innovation, um, then that's also a positive. Uh, yep. Yeah, I'd like to give away, give, give way to the girl over there. But uh, meanwhile, can we mention public transport? It's no good saying use bikes and, yep. and walk. Yep. If you're making a longer journey, we need to put all sorts of impetus towards greater support for public transport, from individuals using it to local government, having the, the money and resources to support it, to the, the, all the public transport um, vehicle manufacturers, uh, trains and, and buses and, and, and so on. And we cannot all of us get in our cars and go places for nothing. Just one person zooming on a pleasurable trip. We can't keep doing that. Yep, no, 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 absolutely. Transport is really, is really critical. And uh, so the, the Committee on Climate Change recently recommended that as a country we aim for a net zero um, by 2050. And, and if we're going to do that, then as a country, we absolutely need to rapidly move to electric vehicles, for example. Mm. So was it? Oh, where were we? This one up here. Oh, not there. Okay. Uh, just going back to what was said earlier on about um, China and India and America. And you did point out that China and India are uh, going forward with things like renewable energy and also that we can do something. The thing that stands out in my mind is looking at your graph and looking at 10 years with the best will in the world. I can't see how that turnaround can take place in that time frame. I, I, I'm not going to deny it. It's a real challenge. 
Yep. Hi, my name is Emily as well. Oh, um, hello, Emily. I just want to say, what tips would you have for a young person trying to make a difference? Oh, that's a good question. So I think um, the key thing is use your imagination. There are all sorts of different things that you could be doing, um, either in, ter you know, in your school, for example, um, having e either things that you could do, do in your school um, in terms of, uh, of the way in which uh, you, the d different food that you eat in your school, for example, or do something imaginative to, 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 to uh, broadcast to a wider audience um, the, the, the challenges, the urgency, this, 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 this key fact of us having such a short time available in which to act. And, and I, I've been really inspired by what the school children have been doing recently in terms of raising their voices. So I think you should be inspired by that as well. Thank you for an interesting talk. It was good to uh, hear about some of the new science being done. Uh, but I wonder if we've passed the point where science can help uh, get the political changes we need to make uh, corporations and other huge emitters of, of CO2 uh, change, change their ways. Uh, as we heard, not just in this country, but around the world, the response really isn't good enough. Uh, do you think that we've reached the point, therefore, where civil disobedience is perhaps not only necessary, but a moral imperative? So, I, I mean, uh, you know, I think it's quite obvious from what I've been saying that, you know, we, there is such a short time in which to act. And I think absolutely it is essential that people use their voices in whatever ways they want to. And, uh, you know, the scale of change that we require starting today is really, really significant. Mm -hmm. Hi, you mentioned that um, over 10 years we are likely to um, end up exceeding the 1.5 degree climate change limit. Uh, it's going to be really important to um, have negative emissions technologies by then to mm -hmm. effectively suck uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. What do you see as the leading potential solution for that? Mm. So, well, so, so negative emissions technologies are ways of take actively taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The simplest possible negative emissions technology is a tree. <laughs> so one thing that you can do is just plant more trees, um, which is a very good thing to do. Uh, to get to the sort of scale uh, that's required, just planting more trees, you have to plant an awful lot more trees. Um, so uh, some of those scenarios that I, that I showed of possible ways of keeping temperature below 1.5 degrees only look at essentially reforestation, planting more trees. But in order to do it just with that, you have to plant more trees over an area of land that's something like 10 times the size of Spain. So it's really significant. And one of the challenges with any of the... There are, there are also other ways in which you can take, through technology, take um, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And one of the challenges with them, and where we have to be really careful in our response, is that they can... You know, th so, so planting more trees has an implication for land use. Um, there are other technologies that have implications for water use or, or, or in terms of the amount of energy they use, etc., etc. So we have to be very careful in looking at all different aspects of that. But you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, essentially we're going to 
need to find ways of actively taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Yep. Hi. I'm sure everybody in, in this hall, thank you, that individual responses are good. And I'm sure most of us are trying to reduce our use of plastic and cycling and stuff like that. But I wonder how many of us, I speak now, not on the moral high ground, because I've taken two flights this year, one long haul. What are you, as your institute or whatever, talking about po to policy changes about how we will be made to reduce our easy jet flights and cheap because I don't know how many people in, th in this building could say they haven't taken a flight in the last year. Mm, no, flying is... And that's painful. Yeah, well, so, so, so um, I mean, just speaking from a personal perspective, um, then um, I, I personally have really tried to reduce my business-related travel. It strikes me as though, um, actually, in terms of business-related travel, we have the technology to do video conferencing these days. <laughs> and, you know, why... It's, and, it, and to me, it's one, another, one, another one of these examples where there's all sorts of other positive benefits of, especially for business travel, not travelling. It saves time. I mean, we, you know, the amount of time it takes to fly across to the US and back again, very significant. It take, saves money. Um, I also think, and I'm quite passionate about this, that it's actually... Um, really important in terms of equality and diversity. So I've got, as you saw, two young little girls. Logistically, it's really a nightmare for me to travel and organize the childcare around that. And I think that, again, there's, a, there's, there's positive benefits of doing more video conferencing just to, uh, in terms of that as well. So I think it's one area where, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. Hello. Yep. Hello. Hi. How, how significant is the contribution of methane to this story? Oh, yes, methane. Methane is worrying. So methane, um, so methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Um, and uh, so the, 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 the causes of emissions of methane, um, it can come from cows. Um, it can come from uh, the, uh, cultivation of rice. It can come from wetlands. It can come from the, the stores of methane in the, in, the, uh, in the permafrost in the Arctic. It can come from um, uh, leakage from, uh, from, from uh, gas exploration and so forth. Um, so there's a various, various different so potential sources of methane. The thing that's really, really worrying is that methane is significantly increasing in the atmosphere at the moment in ways that we had not anticipated. And as I said, it's a much more powerful greenhouse gas, especially on the short term, than carbon dioxide. So it's a cause of great concern. And we're not yet fully certain why that is increasing. Um, is it increasing because of more, em more direct emissions of methane, um, perhaps due to increased number of, uh, of, of cattle in parts of the world or, or increased... Um, a cultivation of, of rice or, or increased leakage from, from the gas sources, or is it coming as a result of feedback effects um, from tropical wetlands warming up or from the Arctic permafrost um, melting? And, and that's a great concern at the moment. Yep. Thank you very much. I increasingly hear that the data transmission industry is causing as many CO2 um, emissions as the airline industry. So every email we send, every Instagram photo, every bit of processing that you're doing is actually now producing as much CO2 as the airline industry. 
doesn't ever seem to get talked about. I wonder why. Yeah, so, so it's certainly true that d just data centers themselves um, uh, can use a, a very large amount of, um, of, of electricity, and that's where that source of, of emissions comes from. I mean, it's certainly something that the, um, the large data companies are taking seriously and uh, are trying to reduce their emissions, but I, uh, you know, I agree it's an important part. Um, yeah. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm over here. Um, 100 years ago, the world population was 1.3 billion. Mm -hmm. um, it's now sort of hovering around 7 billion. Mm. And it's projected by the end of the century to hit 13 billion. The goalposts for reaching this 1.5 degrees uh, limit, I the goalposts are getting further and further away each year with this rising population. Yet it's something which we don't seem to talk about at all. It's, it's the elephant in the room, which we, we, we just don't dare speak about on, on, on a worldwide basis. And it's going to make the challenge even more difficult as, as we go through the years. Have you got any thoughts on that? Well, so, so absolutely, a rising population means ever-increasing pressure on the world's resources. So it's clearly a critical part of the, of the, you know, of the overall picture, uh, that rising population. I think, so I wouldn't say that it's not talked about at all. Um, so one of, the th one of the key things is to consider climate change in the context of all the other development goals. And some of those development goals, again, are, are aspects in which um, aspects of, of um, population growth can be addressed at the same time as aspects of climate change. And one of the, one of the things that's always pointed to in terms of um, population growth is the important role of women's education, um, which typically then leads to reduced family sizes. Um, and, and actually, this, this later today, I'm doing another event with Mary Robinson, who's written a book on climate justice. And if you look at that book, one of the things when I was reading it that really struck me, she tells um, a series of stories of people who have, um, in their own individual way across the world, really taken up the mantle of trying to be, uh, I guess, spokespeople for their own communities and how they are being affected by climate change. And one thing that really struck me in that, they're almost all voices of women and um, when uh, Mary Robinson tells the stories of those women and how they got to be in that position, uh, in many, many instances, it's very clear that, that them being given the opportunity to um, have a, an advanced education was critically important to their feeling of empowerment to be able to raise their voices. So I think there's lots of different ways in which you know, aspects of the, of, the, of, the, of the growing population are, of course, intimately related to all of this, but I think we can look at addressing them in sophisticated ways. Hi, uh, um, oh, yes. sorry, I was just wondering how much you think we should maybe move towards nuclear power as a kind of source of baseload electricity, given that renewables maybe will never, ever, never be reliable, or, or at least not in the short term. Yeah, so, I mean, my sense is that re uh, nuclear is, be is getting so expensive now that I'm le you know, I think it's, it's less obviously um, uh, an important part of the mix than perhaps it, w it, it was even a few years ago. And at the same time, the price of uh, renewables has really dropped. And so I think just on price grounds, the two have changed. What, as you say, um, 
what, what, what historically was, the, uh, was the, the reason for thinking that nuclear, for this country, was an important part of the mix, was the idea that renewables only provide intermittent energy only when the sun's shining or when the wind's blowing. Um, but I think what we're seeing is really significant increases in, in, in battery technologies. So whether or not that balance stays the same in the, in the future or whether or not battery technologies are going to help with that baseload, I suspect that there's... There, there certainly do seem to be significant advances in battery technologies that I think are going to help a lot. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, as I'd love to kind of push the climate, what you can do in schools, what mm. you any ideas of how to... what I could present to the head teachers to improve in schools to stop their kind of carbon footprint? Mm. Um, well, so, so I, I already mentioned uh, the food... Um, clearly, clearly, diet is, is, is really um, important, and if everyone moves to just having a, a, a healthier diet with, with less, um, particularly red meat um, in it, then that would be good for the environment as well. And so that would be one thing that you could easily um, push within the schools. But I think, uh, I mean, an, an awful lot of it is about just consuming less and spreading that message. Um, I was giving a talk um, recently, actually on the food example again, I was giving a talk recently looking at food waste in the UK. So we throw away huge quantities of um, food each year, equivalent in weight to twice the UK population thrown away each um, year. And much of that food is completely edible. And so if you just took the completely edible food um, that we throw away, it, just in this country, it would be sufficient to give 13 million people two healthy meals per day. And that's just put in the bin. So that's just one example of just you know, what a throwaway society we've become. I think in an awful lot of instances, the response to climate change is just common sense. I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense to be throwing so much away. And if we just applied common sense and did slightly less of that, then we would be starting to put ourselves on a much better pathway. So I think those are some of the things that you could discuss within your school. Yep. Hi, I just had, um, I heard a statistic the other day which said that three quarters of the world's carbon emissions are caused by the world's 20 biggest corporations. So to what, what extent do you really think that uh, people's movements like the school strike and Extinction Rebellion are actually going to make a difference in changing that statistic? Yeah, so I think, if I get the statistic right, I think it's um, the 100 largest publicly traded um, corporations are responsible for 30% um, or something like that of the uh, global emissions and the top 250, even larger percentage. Um, so, uh, you know, absolutely, I think uh, it, it's quite obvious that corporations play a really significant role in responding to this. And, and those people who are investing in those corporations also, by, by, by instance, have a really key role to play in responding to this. Yep. Hi there. Um, sorry to go back to the whole school issue. Yeah. I think we're, we're missing the stage before that. The schools, the teachers are not educating our children. So it's okay for people in this room who are obviously aware of climate mm. crisis. But actually, it's not part of the curriculum. Mm. Primary schools are at a young age. 
children aren't being taught this. So as scientists, are you lobbying the government to put this as part of uh, the programme for children? Or well, what, what's happening? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And I think it's not just that this is a topic that's so central to children's future and therefore ought to be taught in schools. Actually, my experience is that most children are really interested in this and want to learn about it as well, and that it's a valuable part of their education. So absolutely, I think it's really important. Right, last question, I think. So there are like countries uh, such as Uruguay who within 10 years have gone from about 10% renewable energy to 90% renewable energy and other countries similar to that. So what would you say are the lessons you can take from that on how to like easily transition a country from almost fully fossil fuels to almost fully renewable? Um, yeah, <laughs> a, I mean, each country is different because they're all at different stages of development and you can't, you know, it's quite difficult to compare one country to another. Um, but I think, I mean, even on a small scale, so like University of Cambridge um, is thinking currently about how as a university can we um, decarbonise rapidly the, the operations of the university. And as soon as we've started to think about it, it starts to become really exciting. And everyone has been getting behind it. And we started off thinking, oh, we can change all the light bulbs to LEDs. And that's sort of been done. And that's the easy thing to do. And now we're starting to think about the more difficult things to do as well. And honestly, it, it becomes quite inspiring. And I've seen this, actually, in work that I've been doing with corporations as well. As soon as those corporations start to think, oh, you know, what can we really do to radically make a difference and reduce our carbon footprint? Actually, you know, people working for those corporations actually get quite excited. It's quite a challenge, you know? It's, and, and I think that's the spirit that we really need to seize, that you know, this is an exciting opportunity to shape a cleaner, greener, more sustainable, more resilient future. And that involves you know, a, a new equivalent of an industrial revolution. We're using all the creative and innovative spirit that there exists, um, including from the young people, um, including from, from, you know, people sitting in this room. And that might be in terms of technology or it might be in terms of, of social changes within your communities. But I think it can be turned from a very depressing story about ice sheet collapsing and species going extinct and you know, which just frankly is depressing and uninspiring into actually a very exciting opportunity to create and shape a world that we will actually want to leave to our children and grandchildren. Thank you very much. Thank you.